For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. From the letter of Paul to the Romans, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As much as we think the Gospel reading this morning is about forgiveness, it is about so very much more. About life and death. About living again. But first, an overview. Peter has just heard those familiar words of Matthew 18 concerning what a disciple should do if his brother sins against him. We know how it goes. We talk of it often. We're going to follow a Matthew 18 process. You tell the one who has sinned against you in private. Then with two or three witnesses, if that person refuses to listen to you, and then to the church. And if that brother or sister refuses to listen even to the church, he or she is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. As soon as these instructions are given, Peter is prompted to ask the Lord a question. How many times shall I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? Peter is not struck by the Gentile and tax collector bit. He's not struck by how that process ought to go and how genius it is. He's stuck on the forgiveness of the brother at all. He's, he's stuck on the forgiveness of the brother at all. How many times should that forgiveness be offered and given? Should he let himself play the sucker, one who is used repeatedly and used again? Almost like Charlie Brown trying to kick a football. And Jesus' response is not only to say, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. In other words, the perfect multiplication of perfect numbers. An endless number of times. The result is a staggering number of forgiveness. I feel the need to say that the forgiveness of the brother or sister and on top of that, their reconciliation is conditional upon their listening to you. If that brother or sister listens to you, meaning both hearing and receiving what you have to say, then what happens? That brother or sister is gained, and so that's great. But Peter's hang-up is not upon that. It's this, how many times do I forgive my brother? How many times do I let that play out? And the response the Lord gives is very telling. Not so much to tell him how many times he must forgive, but to turn the question on its head. Asking not how much forgiveness should one offer, but instead, how much forgiveness has been given to you? The answer is given in the parable he tells. Now that answer is actually a quantified amount. It's 10,000 talents worth. A talent in those days was not a little coin. I know that some of you have this image from Sunday school and maybe a coloring sheet or a Bible coloring book that marks a talent as a little coin, a nice, easily portable coin. That is not what a talent is. A talent is a urn, maybe four or five feet tall, made entirely out of gold. It is solid, and by today's standard, it is worth something like $1.2 million. 
I think if you tried to collect 10,000 talents, they wouldn't, certainly wouldn't fit in this building if they were stacked on top of each other. It was a large object. It had no other purpose than being a token of accumulated wealth. Jesus, in saying that the patience of the king is concerning a debt of 10,000 talents, is something like saying that this servant owed over $10 billion by today's value. By reckonings in those days, it was just kind of considered to be absurd that someone would owe anyone a billion, $10 billion. So it's more like in the minds of a hearer, it's just a bajillion dollars he owes. We have trouble imagining it now, except when it comes to the federal debt. But I want you to imagine, not just the debts you owe now, but think of what it would be like to rack up $10 billion in credit card debt. How could you even do it? It's an immense challenge. I'm sure there are at least two people in here who could think about how you'd spend $10 billion, but I can't. I did some math on this. And your monthly payment on your credit card bill would be $100 million a month. You can quickly see how this amount is positively absurd. It's not meant to be realistic. It's meant to shock the senses out of complacency. The king is patient with the debtor, but not just patient. He's ridiculously patient. That debtor can only be described in his actions as doing something like repenting. He falls on his face. He even promises to repay. Who knows how it is possible that he could repay? It's kind of like the federal government. But this, as you know, it's it's impossible. So the king forgives the debt. Just cancels it. The first thing I want to say is that this is such an image of the gospel on the face. The cost of our sin is immense. There is nothing we can do to repay it. We can even make promises and it matters nothing. We must cast ourselves upon the mercies of God and be forgiven. Have that debt dropped even as we are stating our good intentions. In addition, in this parable, we see the limitless patience of God. Consider it for a moment. What is God to do in the face of the offense of sin? I love how the the church fathers asked this question. Like Athanasius asked the question, what is God to do in the midst of this terrible problem? Require the debt to be repaid from the hands of those who cannot possibly repay it? No, that would be monstrous. Destroy that creation that he calls very good? No. Require one life after another until all are dead? No. Instead, we see that God is patient to the core. Love what the prayer of humble access says about this. His character is always to have mercy. Or as one previous prayer book iteration said, who always delights in showing mercy. The Greek word used here is makrothumeo. Makrothumeo. You you may not speak Greek, but some of you do, and you're like, wow, makrothumeo, that's awesome. What does it mean? It means wide courage. Wide courage is patience in the Bible? Why? 
It's not just a plea for patience. It's not just any kind of patience, but patience which displays vast courage. The courage to face the infirmity of others and be slow to anger, even while suffering yourself. It's clear from the parable the king has suffered a great loss that cannot be replaced. He has sought and he has decided, I'm going to eat the loss. As bitter as it is, I'm just going to eat it. Maybe you've had someone owe you a debt and you know they can't pay it and so you just say, I'm just going to cancel it. More often than not, more likely than that, you have incurred a debt that you can't possibly pay and you just have to say, I I can't pay it. The scandal comes when the servant goes out and finds a fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now these are coins. A denarius is about a day's wage. And having been released from a $10 billion debt, he goes out and shakes down one who is a fellow servant just like he is for something like in the realm of $10,000. He goes and demands that this fellow servant of his pay up for his gently pre-owned Toyota Prius. It's not a small amount of money, but it is nothing compared to the debt of which he has just been relieved and forgiven. And it is also certainly the case that this small debt was borrowed from funds lent by the king to the first servant. Maybe what this servant is doing is going out and collecting all the debts that he might owe so that he can at least bring something before the king. And this second servant falls down before his equal and says exactly what the other servant had said before. Have patience with me and I will pay you. We know how the story ends. This servant puts his fellow servant in prison. And when the king finds out, he puts the forgiven debtor in prison until he can pay off all his debt, which as we know, won't be happening. He has still eaten the debt. The relationship has broken down fundamentally, and yet the king will still pay the cost. This is the scandal of a lack of forgiveness in the Christian life. When we refuse to pray for our enemies, when we refuse basic kindnesses to those who have hurt us, when we bear grudges and resentments and anger, it is a weight of the heart. To lack forgiveness is to spurn the very patience of God, an abundant patience. To choose another way, a way of demanding unreasonable things in our pride, in our arrogance, and worse, leading to a kind of murderousness. A rejection of the holiness of the image of God in our neighbor, our friend, or our brother and sister, or sister who is made for eternal glory. When someone owes you a debt, let me just be clear about what happens. They're your slave. You own their butt. And it's not a good relationship. It's a terrible relationship. I mean, I say this off. This is good pastoral advice. Just don't lend your friends money. Give it to them. Just say, take it. Don't lend your children money. Thanksgiving dinner will taste bad. All of that is very important. And it is what you might say is the standard take on this parable. 
Our forgiveness of others should pour out from the abundance of the forgiveness of our Lord and King. But there is another way to read this as something much more expansive, to look even deeper into the parable for the abundant riches of the gospel. And for this, I would turn you to this reading from Paul today, who asks at the end of the reading, he has, uh, I'll read it later, but, but he has described the situation among these Christians. Some of them eat and some of them don't. Some of them drink and some of them don't. Some of them celebrate this feast or that feast and some of them don't. And they're at enmity with each other and war against each other. It's kind of like how in a parish church you might have those who are taking COVID-19 as seriously as death. And those who aren't. Those who are mask wearers and those who aren't. Those who go to the outdoor service and those who go to the indoor service. And their disagreement is not the problem. It's their despising of one another that is the problem. Their resentments of one another that are the problem. And so Paul asks at the end of this reading, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Unless you think this is all just sort of fun. In this very parish, we've had dissent like this over COVID-19. It's led to me not being allowed in certain people's houses for crying out loud. It's terrible. What I mean is that we have a tendency to think about forgiveness in a limited sense. The forgiving of a debt. The atonement for sin. Oh, I'm sorry I hit you, I'm sorry I hit your car on the way out of the driveway. Let me repay it. We think about things being made right. I'm sorry I offended you. Would you forgive me? But what about all the other things? What about the judgment which we pass on others? What about those resentments that are so hardened that they take up room in our heart? What about despising others when there hasn't even been a wrong committed that we can name? What about that? What about when you sit in church and you say, I cannot believe what she is wearing to church? When you sit there and say, I cannot believe how badly behaved their children are. When you sit there and say, I cannot believe how angry they're getting about how badly my children are. Are behaving. Or even about good things like, I hate how beautiful her voice is. I hate how beautiful she is. I hate how good looking he is. I hate. And I despise him for what he has and what I don't have. Here's the problem with resentment and judgment of others. It is a toxic acid which will course through your veins and destroy your perception of the world, of others, and even of yourself. It will destroy any meaningful participation you might have in the world, in your family, or in the church. Think for a moment of all the things that we have to be resentful about. Just bear with me for a moment. What about childhood traumas? Some of you think, I don't have childhood traumas. It's like, go to therapy. 
the bully who embarrassed you or stole from you or made fun of you, the teacher who embarrassed you before the rest of the class, the parents who failed you, that early exposure to the dark realities of life and the people who didn't protect you from it, the parents who screamed at each other late at night hoping you were asleep and then who got divorced. What about the resentment we bear towards the way things are? The fact that children get abused, that the innocent suffer, that there are things which are just not right in this world. Everything is insufficient from the amount in your bank account to the love you're not getting from others to the actions of others which always seem to be against you. And you say, no one's helping me and no one cares. And so you despise those who don't seem to give you the attention or deference or love that you believe you're entitled to. When you hold a contrary opinion and you get nothing but guff about it. There's a way of blaming others for everything that is wrong in our lives or the lives of others. There is what happens when we engage in social media to the extent that simply opening Instagram fills us with covetousness. And then resentment and envy and self-pity and then rage and then murderousness. And if you don't think this is true, there have been murders committed because of what someone put on Instagram. It is a living hell sometimes. A friend of mine calls all these social media things, he says, it's a catechism of desire. Ooh. It forms you in desires. It even forms your desires. I mean, did you not notice that the ads that are in, the, that are in line are always exactly what you want? <laughs> exactly. I mean, they know me so well, and I don't know how. Resentment is a toxic acid which not only corrodes our relationships, but it corrodes the soul. It eats you alive. It leads us not to reconciliation and forgiveness, but to believe that we are owed. And what does the gospel hold forth for us who are resentful? What does the gospel say to us who despise our neighbors? What does the gospel say if we hold grudges and believe that we are owed? What is the good news for the resentful? Built into the fabric of nature itself is the truth that when someone wrongs you, when someone owes you a debt, when someone owes you, you can either resentfully and angrily exact vengeance and payback at the cost of another and ultimately the cost of yourself, or you can painfully, to no one more than yourself, courageously, boldly, and widely take the just suffering due to another upon yourself. You have that power. It is written right into nature. If someone owes me a debt, I can cancel it. I can eat the loss. You can eat the loss. Your life won't get better. In fact, it very well might get worse. You might never be reconciled to the one who has sinned against you or owes you that debt. They quite often will want nothing to do from you. Nothing to do with you. But you will have peace. Peace at the cost of your own suffering. And it is always a price worth paying. This is what the psychologist Jordan Peterson says about resentment, and what he says about resentment is fantastic at many places, but I picked just one. 
The motivation that drives the commission of the worst human atrocities is an inevitable social consequence of the refusal of the self-conscious individual to make the sacrifices appropriate to establishing a harmonious life. And their consequent denigration, degeneration into a kind of murderous and resentment-filled rage propagating endlessly through its variations in society until everything comes to an end. You might ask, what is eating our society? It's the very same thing that's eating us. It's resentment and hatred. All because we are unwilling to sacrifice. And this is where we see that this way of courageous, wide, self-giving forgiveness takes us right to the heart of the gospel. It allows us to not only experience the wonderful and vast and wide forgiveness which is offered to us in Jesus Christ the Lord, it allows us to actually experience in ways that are appropriate to us the suffering which He endured to procure it. Sometimes I think that the most, the most suffering that Jesus endured was to simply say in all that pain and all that blood and all that misery as He was dying, Father, forgive them. That was the hardest thing to do. This is a way held forth to us in the Gospel of detachment from the failings of others of others that comes at the cost of self-emptying sacrifice. The doing of the holy thing instead of the vengeful, instead of living a life of anger and resentment. Friends, what does this look like? It looks like dying. It looks like standing before the judgment seat of God every day, aware that we owe a debt that we cannot pay, aware that we belong soul and body to the one who not only made us, but redeemed us and purchased us at so great a price, and choosing with courage and abandon to let go of the attachments of this life and quite simply to choose to die and belong to God rather than live, quote-unquote, and have others belong to us. It means choosing harmony with God and with others at the cost of our own sacrifice, no matter how small or great. And it means doing so over and over and over and over and over and over again. Praying for our enemies, fasting for those who have hurt and harmed us, interceding for their blessing and conversion. It means leaving cursing and rage alone and dying. And it means coming to the liturgy each and every time with a deep and abiding desire for the peace of God which comes from His own outpouring of Himself in the person of Jesus Christ even at this altar, even on this day. As spiritual riches are poured out, sacrificed. As you and I make a much smaller sacrifice. The sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving. Paul writes, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying at the end of the day, you're dead. You've got nothing to complain about. You've got no one to own. 
because Jesus Christ owns you. And that's the only thing that matters. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.